Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. That probably cut out. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guests are Emma Hilton and Colin Wright. Emma Hilton is a developmental biologist, and Colin Wright is an evolutionary biologist. In this conversation, we talk about sex, the male the female, why they're different, how they came about, and why it's kind of important to understand that particular reality. We also talk about the hot water that they've gotten into and continue to get into when they try to discuss that fact in public. And we try to suss out the confusions at the heart of the gender-sex debate. Colin works for Quillette. Emma works for Academia. They're great. I'm glad to have them both on the channel at the same time. They've got a great rapport, I have to say. So without further ado, here is Colin Wright and Emma Hilton. So when did, how did you two, uh, you guys work together? You had an article in uh, Wall Street Journal. Uh, how did you guys uh, meet and how did your interests converge? I think it was just on Twitter. We found ourselves in the same threads, arguing the same points to the same people again and again and again. <laughs> and then we just sort of realized that Maybe we should collaborate on something here moving forward. Is that Emma, <laughs> your take, Emma, for how? I mean, how that exactly the same that suddenly I was being tagged into lots of threads with Colin. We were saying the same kinds of things, and um, I, don't, I don't really remember how the Wall Street Journal thing came up. I think there was some faint idea that we should write something a bit more kind of mainstream than what we'd you know, been putting out on social media and started perhaps touting around for, you know, people or, or um, editors perhaps that would be willing to take articles like this. And we had a little bit of help on the way to with some introductions and those kinds of things. If I remember, you were also anonymous on Twitter back then too, and I think you were first... Yeah, I, when I, yeah. when I first got on Twitter, so I don't remember when that was, and I, I mean, you know, everyone starts a Twitter account 10 years ago just to kind of hold space, and um, and started to become involved in a very anonymous way, because I'd seen what had been happening to uh, women who were speaking, up, speaking out about the kinds of issues that I was interested in speaking out about. And so uh, anonymity is a very kind of protective thing on, you know, social media, uh, particularly not necessarily more so than any other uh, political issue. But when you are speaking very politically, it's quite um, it does offer some protection. And then you have, you know, a, a career on the go and institutes to to um, do your duty to. <laughs> so so anonymity kind of suited me. And then it became. I don't want to say untenable to remain anonymous, but I was seeing other UK women academics being really brave, talking about, you know, whatever their interests are and their various t 
takes on on the kinds of politics uh, of feminism and particularly most recently how that's um intersecting with transgender rights and and i became really i felt like i was being a bit of a coward you know that i was free to speak in a way that i didn't feel too um that i could be censored for and and i just one day thought why am i you know why am i not using my real name i'm not i wouldn't have been that hard to find anyway so so it just became obvious that i should use my real name that's not to say that women who don't you know are um you know, there are reasons for, for people uh-huh. hiding identity on Twitter. Was there other. an immediate cost and was it worth it, that trade-off? Um, I became, well, obviously immediately identifiable in the sense that people would have known my city and that I was at a university there and there's not so many choices. Um, but my name then became um, a, a really... A, focus that people could for example write complaints about so it's, there popped up a, a couple of uh, threads on reddit and there's a, a a photo stream about me on Flickr um, <laughs> showing like lots of my examples of my tweets that are apparently very hateful and transphobic and then a link to the complaint form for the university and that kind of thing so it did it did mm. ramp up a little bit but I have no idea what was happening before you know whether these things were happening and my institute have been really good with me so that's that's always um, nice to know Colin have you had a similar uh I guess, a campaign against you? Yeah, there were several. <laughs> a lot of them, well, I think the, the biggest ones were just in response to sort of like the first Quillette article that I wrote, uh, the New Evolution Deniers, because that was basically my first volley into this this whole this whole world of, of combating against this stuff. Um, then there was, the, the Wall Street Journal one was probably the biggest backlash and that came in interesting waves, too, because at first it was all, like, 99% positive. And then somebody, quote, tweeted it with, you know, 100,000 followers. And then it just, like, the next day just opened up to just, like, these rivers, this avalanche of hate that just came through. So I, I've, I was just blocking people left and right. Uh, and then I had a few tweets before where talking about the whole rapid onset gender dysphoria as a... Uh, yeah perhaps a social contagion. And th- those were the ones where the people really started tweeting like at Penn State where I was working at the time. Uh, I was on the job market, so I was I had a period where I kind of went on lockdown on Twitter and I just, you know, locked my account just because I had spent so much time making, you know, hundreds of job applications that are being currently reviewed by search committees. And so uh, it kept kind of a low profile. I actually broke my Twitter silence, my lockdown for the Wall Street Journal article to come out. So it was just kind of like, it's quite the way to to come out of it. But uh, yeah, it's been, it was it was intense for a while. There were a lot of colleagues that I knew, uh, both personally and sort of at arm's length, and even ones I didn't know that were just, you know, coming at me. And people said that they were writing letters to uh, universities I was applying to. And then there was a whole job board thing where people were posting on these popular evolutionary biology job boards that I was a a transphobe and a white supremacist. So there was, there was definitely 
that aspect of it not being yeah, it's anonymous. Odd how they shoehorn in the white supremacy thing. Like that yeah. has nothing to do with race. I guess maybe it does. It's the ultimate taboo, I think, really, the the kind of final insult that you can sling at someone. Um so so if you're not cowed in any way by being called a transphobe, if you're not responding in the way that they want, um when they call you a transphobe, then they say you're a white supremacist. And I think people have a very, uh, perhaps a much stronger response to <laughs> to being called racist than they do to thinking about other political structures. And there, there are various reasons for that. Um, so I think it's the ultimate insult, whether it's whether it's true or not. And, and I think to be sure they, the people throwing these insults don't care if it's true or not. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> these and, and then there's also those articles that you get, it's like, why biological sex or how biological sex is rooted in white supremacy or something and i constantly get accused if we're arguing about whether castor semenya should be allowed to compete since she's black they'll say that me not wanting her to compete against females is because you know we're judging her because she looks masculine and then they'll make these claims about the historical ways that black women had been considered you know mm-hmm. more masculine and more male by racist settlers and things like that and they'll just couch it in this big history of oppression so that's sort of how they shoehorn in the whole yeah i'm a racist also even if i'm just making arguments about you know males and females so part of this discussion is so simple that it's almost like boring to hell because when we ask what is sex it's very simple. There's these things that are called sperm and there's these things called ovum. But that's not all that sex is because a male and a female, the developmental arc of them is very complex. And are, and then you add this uh, homo sapien brain to the thing and it, it gets out, out of hand how complex it is. And there's a lot of interesting gray area in the conversation about sex and gender. Um, so there's one way of exploring that gray area where you're you're rooted in simplicity, but you can build up to complexity. And then there's this other uh, activist, uh, this kind of almost convoluted uh, pressure from activists to make it very simple, make it very black and white, and yet very gray at the same time, calling intersex somehow a mixture of male and female and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm wandering toward a question about your attitude to the conversation about sex and gender, where you guys are, where, why, why is it so weird right now? And what are people missing? What do they need to know about this kind of in general? So for me, from a developmental biology point of view, um, and it feeds somewhat into evolutionary biology as well, that that it's very clear that sex is kind of a functional system. It's about how we replicate ourselves. It's not particularly mysterious or... or um, uh, subject only to some kind of human consciousness, you know, deeper understanding. It's it's a very routine, it's a very elegant and beautiful way of mm. making you individual. And as a developmental biologist, I have this very holistic view of of functions in terms of you know what why do animals and plants have them? And when we think about sex, it's something that almost all complex life does. And as a developmental biologist, we often operate along kind of reductionist type 
pathways or types of thinking and so trying to pull out the bare bones of what sex is and what I mean what it can be reduced to as a system function and then within different species whether they're animals or plants what do, what does that mean about their bodies and and how they operate you know as a as a functionally reproductive unit um so so when I started talking about sex I didn't really have any I guess it's very naive I didn't really have much of a concept that people had no background in those kinds of ideas and that does sound really naive when I look back now at three years of trying to explain to people <laughs> you know what what I mean when I'm talking about sex um, that that for some people it really very much is a classification of how you look without any understanding of the you know the system biology behind it so that's where I, I found it very difficult actually to make the jump once I realized that when I was talking about sex and I, I, I thought it was very obvious that I was talking about reproduction and males and females and bodies that are built around those functions as as they are in like I say almost all complex life that that would somehow be obvious to everyone else and it became apparent not too long ago actually that it wasn't hmm. how people really understood when when I was saying the word sex they were just thinking what does a body look like mm -hmm. i think that's where the whole sex is a spectrum that's that's sort of their jumping off points because they they'll see the overlap and distributions of sort of just the way people look and they'll be like oh yeah i've seen people who are sort of androgynous looking i've seen you know just any all all sorts from super masculine randy macho man savage to really feminine so it's yeah that, that's sort of the i guess the intuitive way that people are approaching biological sex or just their their everyday concept of sex I do, I do find a lot of the conversation gets hung up major stumbling block is just sort of turned into semantics basically um what do people mean when we say sex is binary and things like that and there's all sort of different ways people approach that you have like the mathematical definition of it which is like ones and zeros and then you have just people will think sex is binary means that every single individual who's ever existed can be, you know, unarbitrarily placed into male and female categories. And there's no one ever straddles this border. Uh, and then there's what I mean when I say, and I, I think Emma means this too, I won't speak for you, but it's sort of, I'm just trying to convey to people that there are only two sexes, male and female. You know, maybe there's some individuals who could occupy some ambiguous center, uh, but you know, this this notion that if by saying sex is non-binary, this is sort of taken up to the public to mean either that there's more than two sexes or that sex is just this continuous variable completely. And that's that's where the confusion, I think, arises from when nature publishes something like, just a reminder, sex isn't binary, the New England Journal of Medicine. They might think that what, what they're saying is that not everyone can be 100% assigned to male and female, but what a lot of the activists are seeing is there's more than two sexes or sex is a spectrum because that's that's what you see in sort of that whole sphere. So, yeah, it's, it's so semantic and that's what I'm trying to clear up at least to a, a large degree. 
And you, it's it's like there's two different kinds of conversations, but the way in which science is being used to undergird the activist uh, or what they're trying to institute and in changing our society's relationship to sex, relationship to gender, they're appropriating science in a way, but obfuscating it in the process. They'll start talking about spores in uh, fungi when they're trying to break, smash the binary to, to liberate people. They're, they're on a project of liberation. You guys are on a different project. I, I wonder. And so, Colin, you're an Evo bio guy. And Emma, you're a Devo bio girl. Uh, what, what are, could you guys explain like, what those two things are, where they overlap, and how they feed into each other? Do they get along? I would assume, but... They, they get along so well that there is a bridging um, discipline called Evo Devo. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, so I, I'll give my view that, um, you know, I look at how bodies develop in, in, within my research interests. And an evolutionary biologist would look at how those bodies function at a population level. Oh, okay. So I think there's a natural... Um, harmony between the two uh, disciplines. I don't know if Colin has a... Yeah, I mean, they sort of address different timescales. There's like the ultimate cause of sex, like why are there sexes in the first place? And then there's the whole kind of the idea of, well, once these things have evolved, well, how do they actually develop within a lifetime? That's the whole uh, phylogeny versus ontogeny aspect of the so what you see is a very classic, the developmental biologist goes from body up to a population and the evolutionary yeah. has gone from population down to a body. Yeah, it's just all about like time skills. For the evolutionary wise, it's, you know, evolutionary history on the orders of, you know, millions of years. But for developmental biologists who, are, who aren't doing evo-devo, it's from conception onwards, basically. And then there's the people who study the evolution of development and and how uh, changes to genes and early on in, um, in the embryo can like lead to certain adaptations or deleterious mutations later on. It's, it's a super fascinating field. Uh, a lot of fly people are doing that. Yes. So big question, uh, why sex and what is sex? Why, why did uh, evolution decide on sex? And what, what is it, what, what's the function? What is it fulfilling in that landscape? What do you mean by why did evolution decide on sex? What? Yeah, why sex? I, I guess uh, there could be other uh, ways, but I don't know. Like, why? So, so the other ways of, of pro propagating your population, like making new individuals. So, the, so sex is contrasted with asexual reproduction, which is essentially making clones of yourself. So okay. you can be popping off a small part of yourself which is you know growing a whole new individual um, and that's that's really common that's how we think about um lower organisms non-complex organisms and because only well, that only really works on a very uh, simple level on a very non-complex uh, level where it can replicate itself without flaws basically well, the problem with Asexual reproduction, from um, my perspective, is that you're creating clones of yourself and you don't have any robustness in terms of your genetic 
makeup within a population. If you if you have a clonal population or something, that is a population where they all have the same genetics, and something happens that will challenge the the fitness of one of those individuals it challenges the fitness of all of them and there's no responsiveness within a population there's no robustness built in um, and you that's very uh, when you think about things like um uh, diseases of plants potato blight in the irish famine this was because you know you have these kind of clonal uh, plants and they just have no response there's no individuals with a slightly different background that are a bit more able to survive challenges like that so so the move to sexual reproduction where you effectively mix lots of genetics every time you make a new individual creates lots of slightly different individuals and the, the premise then is that when there is a challenge to the survival of that population that some of those individuals may be able to survive so so the advantages in terms of population survival are huge and they have to be because it's very easy to clone yourself to you know one could you're a potato and you you know send out a kind of I, d I actually don't know how potatoes go. <laughs> you know, a tuber and you're sending out a kind of root system and you're growing just new versions of yourself it's very easy it's very um energy efficient Hmm. sexual reproduction making all these specialized cells and these specialized anatomies to produce those cells is incredibly costly for an organism but the the value to the population is is oh. huge huh and is there so, some entity between asexual and sexual or did it just land did it branch off and never the twain shall meet is there a variant of that, I can't even conceive of it, but I'm wondering just for the sake. Understood. So, so sexual reproduction. So evolved from, yeah, I guess if you think about something like how a yeast reproduces, where it will, it will bud. A yeast will bud off a small part of itself that contains half of, half of its DNA, half of its kind of genetic background. And then it will wait for another equivalent half from another yeast and it will fuse together and you have a new individual. So there is mixing of genetics there, but it's huh. it's a very uh, homogenous kind of setup. So that could be, I guess, kind of a halfway in between. Uh, it didn't happen like that, I don't think, in evolution terms. Um, what happened is that you started to find that when people were when people when the organisms were budding off their half of their genome, they started to realize that they could become fitter um as as you know these these cells mm. carrying half the genome, so they would start packing in like um energy mechanisms or or mechanisms to um move themselves around and once you start to specialize when organisms bud off. Um, their little half genetic packages. Once you start to specialise in terms of energy and mobility, you get a very, very quick split. It's been mathematically modelled quite extensively. You get a very, very big split to two extremes, which are, are very large cells that have lots, of, they're very energy rich and they're going to basically form the, the main body of the developing individual and then you have very small mobile cells that that will literally just chuck their their genes in and that's the end of it. And dissolve, yeah. 
yeah. So so once once cells started to specialize in how they they were combining their genetic information, the 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 split to very large cells that we call gametes and very small cells. And that's what you said earlier, sperm are the very small gametes and over the very large gametes, that was, I think I've seen it described as inevitable. It's mathematically inevitable. This is the maximum way to get two cells together with the highest efficiency and with the most robustness for the um, the growing new individual. I know there's a lot of like theoretical evolution papers. I think you've mentioned some where they do like the million simulations of, you know, starting from base assumptions, and they always sort of lead to this, uh, you know, large ova, small sperm type of system. But the way that that manifests developmentally in the female and the male, does that necessarily lead to uh, masculinity and femininity in different animals and stuff like that, where you have this split of the bodies? I'm thinking like a, a big lion and and uh, a kind of a smaller lioness and stuff like that. Is that kind of necessarily what happens once you? Not always. There's. It really depends on the sort of reproductive system that they have, or like just the amount of competition you tend to get between uh, males and females for for different resources. And the environment can impact the way that these systems can evolve too. Like, are males able to? bogard certain resources or our resources so you know sparsely play through the environment where the male can't like defend any certain type of resource uh hmm. or males competing against one another for access to a bunch of females that's where you get like the elephant seals where you just have these giant males they're only like five percent of them or something around there even reproduce and 95 percent of the other males never even uh, have their their genes go into the next generation yeah. so then you can get some ape species uh off the top of my head i can't recall which ones are the most like non-dimorphic uh where they have very similar uh mm. parenting roles and you really can't tell them apart unless you actually uh, examine their genitals mm -hmm. there was an yeah. in, in seals joke there that i didn't slip in but go on emma <laughs> Uh, no, just to just to reiterate, really, or maybe expand slightly, not too much, but that yeah, these once you've got differential investments in what kind of cells you're making in terms of are you are you creating these kind of large gametes that are very energy heavy versus small gametes that are fairly um, easy to produce and, and not particularly precious in a biological sense, you you do start to develop strategies for how best to um, make sure that your gametes are the ones that are, are moving forward to the, the next generation. And we see in the animal and plant world the, these kind of dazzling arrays and wonderful displays of, of anatomy and behaviour. And, and it's all about how males and females are, are fighting amongst themselves to be the most attractive. And then... Um, you know, amongst themselves to have access to to the opposite kind of counterparts, however that manifests in any particular species. Mm -hmm. So it's really quite interesting. I think every everything I, about our sexually dimorphic bodies is is built around you know trying to make sure that it's your gametes that are being picked. Mm -hmm. And whether it's because you, you develop a mechanism to be particularly attractive or whether you develop a mechanism to get rid of your competition. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Yeah. And there's this other landscape called the cultural landscape, where there's this uh, difference between animals and humans insofar, maybe there's not, so correct me, insofar as human beings have proven themselves capable of adapting to any environment, that kind of makes us a little bit more complex in the dimorphism that we experience between males and females. There's a biological dimorphism. There's also this kind of shifting cultural dimorphism that is overlaying the environment too. So it can be very confusing or can be very easy to obfuscate the leap from the natural world into the human sphere and a lot of crosstalk going on when gender comes into the conversation. So how do you guys try to clear up that distinction? What are some of the things that, that people don't want to even listen to when, they, when they're attacking you and calling you all these uh, bad names? What, what do you think that they're trying to say and what are they missing in what you guys are, are doing in the scientific world and describing the natural world? And in what way can science actually help us understand ourselves and each other and uh, go forward? You know, in, in my take, there is this sort of reliance on socialization that we have and there's this tendency to believe that all these sex differences that humans have whether it's in personality or preferences that these are all the result of uh you know 100 percent environmental or socialization the whole blank slate sort of argument um but when you look at humans you know we're not like the most sexually dimorphic of the apes or species we're not the the least either we're somewhere in intermediate there so we would expect to have all these similar behaviors and uh based on our dimorphism we we do sort of reflect a lot of the trends that you see in mammals generally and in, in primates specifically uh but there is this, this hyper focus on the cultural aspect which makes sense because humans are super complex in that sense we have a pretty complex culture that we've we've built up and uh so this is this tends to be where things kind of get haywire where people talk about sex roles and and uh, sex-based stereotypes and there really just does seem to be a big conflation between identity, biological sex, sex stereotypes. And these all just sort of seem to get just thrown in a blender. And mm. when people talk about it, they just, it's all one. They, they used to make these splits between biological sex and gender identity. But now everything is just, just blended. It's just almost impossible to tease apart. So when people start asking me questions about gender or sex, or they'll refer to sex as an identity, or they'll talk about gender, but then they'll be talking about genitals or something. I just, I just need to stop for a second. Just tell me the concept that you're trying to get across, because the words are just breaking down. Everyone has their own backstory and baggage that they're bringing to every every word that they're using. So, yeah, I just, I just try to get people to be clear about what the hell are you talking about. What do you perceive of as people seeing a threat in, just, let's just say, the uh, Wall Street Journal article? What was threatening about that, that they needed to go on the attack? What is threatening about uh, biology, about evolution? Get, so from from my point of view, if I was going to argue from a feminist point of view, it's quite important to understand the difference between sex and gender in terms of, you know, 
biology. My biology is different to either of um, your two. And and that has, you know, certain implications physically for me, as your biology has implications physically for you. Um, what, what gender for me is the application of social roles, as Colin said, social roles on top of that, that then dictate or try to dictate how I should behave, how you guys should behave, what, you know, different aspirations that are placed upon us, different types of life goals. And so... For me, the Wall Street Journal, and, and indeed most of what I argue about on Twitter, is about understanding times when sex really is the, the key axis here, where things are different for me than they are for you two. And, and recognising that a lot of the time we're not that different. You know, we can all go to the pub together and have a drink and nobody's bothered to talk <laughs> you know we're not talking about these kinds of things that but there is there are there are some aspects where biological sex not gender where biological sex is really really important and I think Colin and I try to identify and and just almost list quite superficially because it's you know a, a short article but trying to understand different different contexts limited contexts where biological sex really is the key criteria here for, for how we understand people's behaviors and how we might want to um, make legislation around around people's bodies and um, so the the key thing for me has always been uh, sporting categories for example that that gender identity is really irrelevant to how you compete in sports sport is about what your body can do what its baseline capacity is and that's conferred by basic biological parameters like your sex your age whether you're able-bodied and perhaps you know whether you're a kind of six foot five you know giant versus a five foot um lightweight and so sports is one place where sex is really important gender identity is very irrelevant it, it you know it doesn't matter how you feel in your head you're running down the track with your body and and some of the other things we talked about in the wall street journal article like how gay people understand their sexuality is very much for for many gay people about their bodies the, their you know physical experiences and the experiences that, that they want with other people's bodies and and how they can have words to define that and so so I think we identified a few political I don't want to say footballs but you know these things are being tossed mm -hmm. back and where from my point of view we're arguing that sex really is quite an important criteria but the the other side the activists are arguing that gender identity should be how we categorize people in things like sports and, and where we send people um, and who know, they're uh, supposed to mate with, yeah. And, and, and yeah, how we define sexuality. Now, if some people want to describe their sexuality in terms of their gender identity, I don't think anyone has any problem with that. It's the removal of language from people who do want to use sex-based language that I find quite um, troubling. I think it's interesting, too, because we, we constantly get accused of reducing people to their genitals like that's the accusation we always get when we when we write these articles and stuff and to emma's point it's like well, well no we're not you know it's not like sex is important in every single context imaginable in most contexts it really shouldn't be like if you're getting a promotion or something at work but in some 
some context like this needs to be acknowledged you know who who's going to be who who is the one that's going to be carrying the offspring like there's things that come with knowing who's uh who's you know carrying offspring who needs to maybe take birth control to some degree who's you know there there's just so many questions uh and contexts that sex does matter um this is, I think, the one thing that we're trying to make the divide on is this difference between sex and gender. There could be some context where gender identity might matter. I mean, there might be instances where with the overlap of uh, the way people behave, their preferences, their their behaviors, where you can have some males that might be more female typical in the way that they're uh, expressing themselves and their preferences. And maybe that does explain some other social aspects of their lives. It's important to to you know, to, to track and to understand, um, but it's not going to determine who's carrying the offspring um, and other important areas like who's more likely to win uh, a powerlifting competition. So, yeah, so if it doesn't matter every context, but in the context it does matter, it can matter quite a bit. And do you guys have any thoughts on the inclusion of gender identity into law and the obfuscation of sex or the uh, backseating of sex for gender identity? Uh, that's what's kind of happening uh, in America. Uh, I know that in the United Kingdom, a variety of your different colonies or whatever you guys call those lower beings that you rule, um, they all are working out this gender identity stuff and implementing it into law. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? And, and uh, what, do you, what you're inspired to speak out on or, or to push in that area? So UK law and US law are being constructed quite differently around this. Um, in the yeah. UK, we're actually, you know, for turf island and um, the hotbed of like, global <laughs> transphobia and um, we've actually had a really good and solid equality act for 11 years now where trans people have had their own set of guaranteed protected rights where it is illegal to discriminate against trans people in you know normal situations like housing and healthcare and employment it, it has been illegal in the uk to discriminate against trans people for a long time and it's remarkable that we get kind of called these names women uk women get called these names when when actually we have a much more secure foundation for equality in terms of trans rights um here so the us law is being constructed kind of as we watch, I suppose, and trans rights are being um, framed in reference to sex rather than being considered something different. In the UK, it's considered a, a separate characteristic to sex. Um, so one can have the protected characteristic of being trans and separately the a protected characteristic of, of your sex. In the US, they're being framed within the same legislation such that and it's not it's not a poor argument i don't think it's a bad argument that one can only know if you're trans and and in the same type of legislation one can only know if you're homosexual is if one knows your sex because it's only a reference to a sex characteristic that those two characteristics kind of can be judged to mm. exist and um, so so there is some difference 
in how the law is being constructed in the US versus what occurs in the UK. In the UK, what's happening is gender identity is being used, so our characteristic called gender reassignment, and this is being used to override sex in certain situations. So, for example, in prisons, if someone has a legal recognition of their gender reassignment, um, then they will be treated as the sex they wish to identify as. And, you know, that's a problem perhaps when we're talking about um, serious offenders who are then being placed with vulnerable females. Females in prisons tend to be uh, non-violent, fairly petty crimes, very receptive to, um, you know, support programmes and those kinds of things, low rates of of reoffending, and so so it's kind of blurring. That's the way the line is being blurred in the UK. I don't know how the US is going to play out. It's it's all happening with Joe Biden, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's coming to a head. We'll see how the legislation ends up panning out. I know there's, um, oh, her name is is it Kara Dansky? I know I think she's working really hard to yeah. sort of rewrite some of the the wording to the Equality Act. Uh, to try to just make it clear of the difference between sex and gender identity. Because I believe right now they'll reference biological sex, they'll just say sex, but then in parentheses it has, it includes both sexual orientation and gender identity in the definition of sex. And it's just like, you know, if you can just take those things out and refer to them separately so that they can actually be chopped up in, in ways that are important because they're not the same thing. And if they're not the same exact concept, then they shouldn't be all lumped in the same pool because they're, they probably need different protections for, for, to, uh, because they're, they touch the world in sort of different ways. So we'll see how that develops, but it is kind of like watching a, a horror show, at least from my, my perspective. Well, it goes back to what you were saying about it all being lumped together and mixed up. It, and I don't mean any disrespect to the rainbow flag, but it's like those rainbow colors are all kind of bleeding into one another. On one level, it's all progress, and it's all packaged as anti-bigotry and progress. But behind that, there's all this melting and confusion and murkiness that actually doesn't pan out towards, I guess, justice or uh, fairness uh, in these other respects. And it's really difficult um, in a way, they've made it difficult or they're trying to make it difficult to suss out competing rights and, and, to, and to give justice to these different parties who need different rights. Trans people probably need different rights or different protections than women who, because of women uh, specifically as a class, you know, giving birth, you know, these birthing people, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and so on, so... Yeah, I think this is something we're seeing with things like the LGB alliance. And, you know, people always ask, like, where's, you know, you drop the T, like, where's that going? And they see it as trying to split the community in half or fracture it. But it's it is important to realize the, the different things of sexuality versus gender identity and how, you know, they can't all be lumped in the same exact category and treated exactly the same. Uh, we see them trying to treat it the same in, in the sort of anti-conversion therapy for gender identity bills we have where they're using the same language for uh mm -hmm. you know the gay conversion therapy and they're saying well we can't convert someone's gender identity as well even though you know unlike being gay uh going down a path of of uh gender dysphoria you know a diagnosis early on or something can lead you to pathways where you're going to get surgery and permanent you know cross-sex hormones and 
uh, require you know lifelong medical attention. So these are these are just such different things. You can't just say, oh, it's conversion therapy. That's bad. Like you really need to sort of drill down on the important differences that these these two mm-hmm. groups are really uh, really facing. There's a way in which science can inform us or give us tools to mess up the world or make the world better. Uh, And there's a lot of rhetoric that's anti-scientific and there's a lot of just thought patterns that kind of uh, distrust science or manipulate science. Um, So I know that there's this is-ought gap. Science doesn't tell us what to do. It tries to explain what's real. To what extent do you guys see science as something important to carry forward? And how is this particular domain uh, useful for explaining or showing the power of science or people's uh, misconstrual of what science is? I mean, I I gave a talk recently about how I think we're dealing with something like a religion now it's it's become a a a set of rules or you know expectations of behavior expectations of how society will bend to a to a particular set of rules that don't seem to make complete sense in in lots of social situations and don't make much sense when contrasted against what uh, scientific endeavor has shown us about you know, our physical realities and and those kinds of things. So, so I don't. I think I I'm railing against it in the way that I used to rail it against creationism. You know, I was uh, someone who was going into chat rooms and telling people that they're just not. You know, we can respect your religious beliefs without you trying to bend are, you know, records of material reality to, mm. to meet your religious belief. We can be nice to each other and we can understand that you believe this and I, you know, can understand that you genuinely believe these things. Um, but but that make, makes no difference to actually how the world works. And I think that I don't want to live in a world where we don't at least platform you know, or build a foundation on some on things that we think are as you know coming close to what we understand as real or true. If you like, we don't really attain that in science. But so I just find it very—it's just such a completely irrational way to live, and it's very—it's kind of very what's the word indulgent of the human condition. You know that we can just decide what reality is. I just—it's very. It means my personality in some way. I just don't think that's a very uh, sound way to to move forward. Well, we also need the uh, byproducts of science being technology in order to affect our will upon the world. So you, they're they're kind of almost cutting out the legs of their own ability to achieve what they want in a certain respect. And I'm talking about transhumanism in general or a lot of just our push to try to imprint our will on the world. We still need to understand what the world is in order to manipulate it. Yeah, I, I try to maintain that sort of is-ought thing as, as much as I can. I didn't even get into the whole debate sphere on this issue until they were sort of starting to infiltrate the is uh, that I was trying to defend. You know, I was pretty much all fine with a lot of the split between 
biological sex and gender identity, but it was when they just started saying that, you know, there's five sexes or six or whatever, that it's just a spectrum. That's when I just, that's when I kind of lost it. That was my, I guess, peak moment. Uh, if they were just arguing straight up that they think that, say, males should be able to compete against females and there shouldn't be a female category, and they weren't trying to use, you know, bad biology to do it, if they were just saying that, I just don't think, you know, I just think everyone should compete the best, let the best athlete win. Like, I would still disagree with that on, like, the ought grounds because I there's certain things that I value. But I can I can deal with, with sort of those arguments. But as long as they're not, like, uh, just trying to trying to blend the sort of is and ought by saying that, well, sex isn't even real, so why are we having these categories in the first place? That's mm-hmm. when I just sort of uh, really have the have the problem. Um, it's an assault on truth. It's just, uh, you know, an assault on what we know to be real. And you just feel like, why, why are people telling scientists trying to bend, you know, scientific knowledge? And in terms of sex, a, a body of knowledge that is so old and so well. Just well, and, and incomplete, too. There's a lot more work to be done to understand. Uh, I know female medicine needs a lot more uh, work mm-hmm. on it. And if you abolish the category of female, then you stall that out. You stall science going forward. You stall progress. What's really, what's really interesting, um, and Colin and I have been looking into it over the last few weeks, is um, there's been a set of, this is kind of a bit tangential maybe, but there's been a set of regulations coming out of the NIH in the US and the um, EU Commission about the reporting of sex in science and kind of go, I don't think it's a political, it's not a political move, it's a very good scientific move, but going against the the general narrative that's being pushed that sex doesn't matter and, and who can tell and, you know, or everyone's a bit, you know, just statistically some amount of female and male um, these these initiatives are to accurately record sex in all kinds of scientific research um, because as you say females are intentionally or unintentionally and dropped out of scientific research and I don't just mean in human research I mean in you know and um, all kinds of uh, disciplines that we, we tend to study male individuals, that's for, for various logistical reasons or whatever. But now, now the EU and the NIH are saying, no, you have to record sex, because even if it's not immediately obvious to your own research why sex might matter, someone else has to be able to disaggregate those results in case it turns out to matter. So, so there's some, a few really nice reviews and guidance policies coming out now saying actually you have to say whether you're are you talking about males are you talking about females are you talking about mixed population are you um does it matter do you observe differences and and so that's kind of very starkly contrasting to what we've seen as the dominant narrative in as colin said earlier, journals like nature where they're saying well sex isn't binary and it's going to be very odd to see deliberate uh, reporting of well, the males did this and the females did that, and then a nature going to insert their little um, disclaimer that well, sex isn't binary. When <laughs> you know we're being told you have to know what the sex of the cell line that you use, what what was the sex of the individual it came from. So that's going to be interesting to see how that pans out and whether that will be subject to some kind of pushback. Yeah, 
I mean, there was that nature paper that came out. Was it yesterday that you sent me? What was that yeah. was on? What was that one on? It like uh, it was psychiatry a or neuroscience differences. So um, a couple of neuroscientists talking about this initiative to record sex in various types of neuroscience research you know there were differences in how males and females progress to neurodegenerative disorders how they behave in certain situations not male and female humans or you know mammals whatever is under study here and and it was essentially a really nice review of known sex differences even down to the cellular level that that females have so, for example, in the male and female brain, they talked about why there are volumetric differences in certain structures within the male and female brain. But we do generally know that functional output is is pretty much the same between males and females. Hmm. But they but they don't achieve functional similar functional output by by the same mechanisms that females may reach the same output via one path and males reach it by another, and that this might be important. And you have to really be able to tease apart those those mechanisms. It seems that there is a push to abolish distinctions because those distinctions, all categories exclude some gray area. They exclude the exception. I understand that in listening to scientists, you guys are fascinated with the interesting. You're looking for the interesting thing, which kind of is uh, kind of a fetish in a way for the exceptional. You want to see how the aberration from a norm, uh, the political push to abolish normativity in order to, you know, liberate or save the people who fall out of that uh, normativity. Uh, it's going a step too far, but I understand the mechanisms of wanting to do that, of provide, you know, protections for the marginalized and how categories can marginalize, how noting, uh, you know, the, the difference between noting that there are differences between males and females in their behaviors and in their values is usually can be construed as some sort of prescribing of normativity, uh, like saying that you you have to act that way. It doesn't, the, those two different, uh, qualities of statements can be conflated um, and stuff. So I'm wondering under what, I guess it's a very, it's, it's almost too basic the, to, to really get into, but under what, how does science distinguish itself from, you know, establishing all these categories and then expecting this behavior or being used to enforce things? How does science, uh, uh, explain or treat the exception to the rule? And is that necessarily oppressive in any way? I mean, I think in some contexts it can be. I mean, there's examples that in Alice Drager's book talked about sort of attitudes around intersex genital surgeries, you know, when they try to correct the way that they, they looked or to, in order to conform to stereotypical uh, you know, just have their anatomy match what you would expect a, a male's penis to look like or a female anatomy. Um, but there's also this this thing that needs to, this sort of gets lost in this whole push to sort of blur all the lines and to, to queer everybody so that no one is considered to be uh, anomalous in some way. And I'm not using that in a, you know, a way that's a moral way of saying that you're, you're an anomaly or something. But 
Um, sometimes people have certain conditions in order for them to be treated and identified, like they need to be able to say that like, this is something that I have that is important to me and it affects my life. And they might need special medical treatment for these things that we're not going to be able to really address if everyone is just considered sort of some variation of this, if there's no actual uh, categories that something can maybe fall in between. So um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I see it going. I mean, we always get accused of when we say that there's differences between something or that, uh, you know, I mean, a, a trans individual, gender dysphoria, if we classify it as a, a medical condition or a, psych, a psychological condition, this is always thrown back in our faces. You know, this is, you're basically telling these people that they're aberrations or that they're, they're errors or something. And it's just really important to just separate out any sort of moral component from just a, mm a pure fact-based um, hmm. evidential look at the, at the evidence of if are these people uh, falling sort of outside of the certain standard deviations on something? And does that matter for certain reasons? Should, should there be any sort of implementation that can help individuals if they're struggling with something? These are things that we need to be able to consider without sort of getting mired down in this debate about if we're, if we're calling people names or something, because, Mm. Almost every time we're not. That's not what we're doing. It's uh, there's that uh, thing that you published. I don't know how to classify it, so I called it a thing. But there's this push for insurance purposes to classify the breast tissue as an anomaly, in order to uh, escape the uh, you know the anomalous uh, condition of sex. We are now going to anomalize the body in a way. I mean, there's very cynical reading of that, but it's just so weird how far. This is going to call to to moralize flesh at this point to say that it doesn't belong or it's not what it should be. I mean, I would ask just um, in that sense, and when one considers the American healthcare system, is that simply a way of getting around categories so that an insurance company will pay? I mean, there's a. I suspect yeah. there's a certain amount of just what's written on the form in order to get a payment is is not i mean it may well be but hopefully not it's not necessarily what's happening between the clinician and the patient and so so i wonder if some of that is just administrative ways of making sure insurance companies pay up i know that the same happens with um with trans men so that would be someone who is um, f who is female but who wishes to be viewed as a man who might then take testosterone. I think testosterone can be accessed as under the, the banner of um, a testicular dysfunction. Now, we know females don't mm. have testicles, but, but it's, some of that sounds a bit to me like it might be administrative in nature. Just as a word of caution. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't, I, was, I wasn't aware that's what they do with, with trans men sometimes. It's yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's a lot of language games that have a lot of different outcomes, uh, you know, in order to get what you want or in order to reshape society in the image that you want. Um, and science is up to something else. So you guys get in periodic trouble when you disrupt the the program uh, that that's of the day. <laughs> well, that yeah. back 
to you for the question you asked um, just previous to, to this one, which is how does science kind of feed into, you know, society, I guess. And my immediate response to that was, well, I mean, it doesn't. That's not what, certainly not the kind of science that I do. Uh, has has to worry about. Now, I'm not suggesting we don't have ethical concerns about the type of science that we do and how it might be used. But but really, science is about just saying, you know, this is this is the world, and then we give it over to humanity to try and make sense of it and, and organise, you know, societal rules that that create kind of fairness and those kinds of things. So I don't really know that that basic science really has ha, has anything to say about how a society should function mm-hmm. there's this other layers too because you get the science that'll just tell you how things sort of are in a certain way and then you have the societal aspect where people are identifying and it has to do with social roles and then you have the other layer that's just the the legal system you know so we can we can talk about sex in terms of biological sex socially perceived sex and then there's like your your legal sex, and those are just you know those probably should have a lot of overlap in what we're calling the same thing. But legal sex doesn't necessarily need to be exactly <laughs> what your biological sex is. There, I mean, I leave open there maybe some contexts where a trans individual could become legally, uh, you know, the at least you know, on on the legal documents the sex that they identify as. But there's all these debates about what are those criteria. Um, is it just mere self-ID? Do you have to have surgeries? Do you have to be on test? Oh, any, any type of um, hormones? So, yeah, it's just a huge, complex thicket. Yeah. What What's on your uh, plates coming up? What What's the next uh, things uh, that you guys are up to that you're willing to divulge? So I'll... I can't give too much away and this is something emma's been waiting i need to send her a draft on something here pretty soon but uh we've been contacted by uh, i won't say like the journal but a few journals actually of, of pretty pretty well-known journals have reached out to sort of uh get the take that we have on biological sex and is it binary is it a spectrum and these types of things which i think mm-hmm. is going to be a really great sort of foray in the future because the biggest criticism we got for the Wall Street Journal article was just like, well, it's not a scientific journal. This thing wasn't peer reviewed. Like, where are the citations in it and all that? And, you know, this is, they just can reject it out of hand like that, even though they'll, they're throwing me some medium blog that says that, you know, males and females aren't real. <laughs> so I think this is going to be a next step is to get this into the scientific literature. It feels almost silly doing it. It'd be like having a journal reach out and say, can you tell us that, like, objects fall to the ground? just to reiterate to people here, but that's kind of what we need to do because, I mean, there really aren't any papers out there right now that are just saying that, like, there are only two sexes because it's just sort of this common knowledge thing mm-hmm. that we, we know. Like, you don't get papers anymore mm-hmm. in evolutionary biology that are, just, that are just saying that, by the way, evolution is real. <laughs> we, like, we've moved past that. We're now, like, talking about the details and how did this certain structure evolve and how do these behaviors evolve. Um, so you could, I mean, easily go back at evolution and say, like, show me the paper that says evolution is real. Like, probably going to be difficult to find one that says that exact sentence. So we have to do this work now in the scientific literature of just making these most basic statements uh, available to people so that we can actually cite these certain claims that uh, oh. that are really just 
yeah. should be should be common knowledge. Mm. So hopefully that's the next the next battle into the literature. I was working on a um, a, a piece of legislation um, and needed a reference for essentially there are only two sexes. And I was talking with people <laughs> at work, and Colin, you may have found this in your kind of academic world that. I was I was just chatting with them. They're you know they're developmental biologists. They're kind of everyone's a bit kind of clever and they think they're being smart comments and stuff. But but saying to them, I need a reference for there are only two sexes and I can't find one. And one of my colleagues said to me, Well, it's just textbook. No, it won't even be in a textbook, will it? And that's the level we're at. That that not even it's not just papers. It's not even textbooks. Preface their sections on on sex and you know it's it's role in evolution or, or how sex develops in in a given individual nobody needs to say there are two sexes because because biologists don't think this needs saying it's like saying water is wet or like Colin said objects fall to the ground hmm. you know imagine every paper on <laughs> like gravitational theory starting yeah. with <laughs> a, a kind of image of newton under an apple tree it's just it's insane it's insane and it's hmm. insane we, we are in a position where like Colin said we're trying to create resources or, you know citable resources just to fight against this nonsense it's 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 insane i was telling benjamin earlier before i'm i don't know if we were recording then but that's almost like embarrassing for for me to this is like the hell i'm dying on this is what people know me for because I really don't feel like it requ it should require like this expertise to talk about like to me this is like way easier to talk about than any of the research I did on ants and wasps and spiders and everything like that stuff is just like a dense thicket of, of literature and contradictory claims you got to figure out what's what's real what's not uh this is this is pretty easy <laughs> I mean it really is there's like some nuances here and there, but like people seem to miss those for some reason. But uh, I, I really, it's almost, I feel like just like this pseudo intellectual because I'm just saying these like most basic things and then people are just somehow eating it up to some degree. And this is like, okay, I guess I'll just keep saying that because so for some reason, no one else is saying it. There's such a small pool of biologists who are actually publicly willing to say this thing. Mm. It's so interesting how the people who reached out to have me write this article that Emma's going to be uh, uh, writing with me, they have to, they reached out to someone who's outside of academia. They couldn't find someone who'd be willing to write about this, or at least no one comes to their mind who's in the academy, who's willing to just say that there's only two sexes and sexes in a spectrum. They have to find some exiled spider biologist who's just <laughs> in a position where like I'm uncancelable right now, or I can just say what, what everyone should already be knowing it's it's just such a bizarre situation so but then, and, take, take me down with you <laughs> yeah yes yeah, so you, you're the one who has like their 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 neck on the train tracks i suppose so it's sorry <laughs> but it's it's such a bizarre position to be in in a way it's kind of the best of both worlds for me because when i left academia one of my uh biggest regrets was that i'm not going to have institutional uh, affiliations and no one's going to want to have you know what am I just right independent scholar like that just sounds it sounds sounds bad it sounds like I'm just some hack that they hmm. they have writing these papers but apparently I I can that's that's what I'm going to put on the article uh, and people are still reaching out to write about this stuff so 
I'm happy to do it. Just I can just launch the the volleys from from the outside. So it's hmm. it's a good it's a good situation. Sorry, Emma. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, I know probably a couple of anecdotes from people at my work already, but. But when I have received complaints, particularly public ones, I mean, I've had there's been a fair amount of private ones uh, where I've had to go and defend my uh, view, which I'm happy to do so robustly because I really, I really do trust kind of academic freedom that I'm able to say things that aren't particularly controversial. Well, they're only controversial if you make them controversial. Um, but but publicly defending you know where someone has attacked me particularly when they're scientists and the number of people who wonder by where I sit and say that wasn't very nice was it about you know what someone has said about me is is always been really reassuring and I've had lots of Mm. emails from random scientists who I don't know I'm not connected with and I will say I'm really sorry that I don't reply to this I'm never entirely sure if they're fishing for kind of this is your actual email address and you're responsive to this. But lots of scientists saying, I've seen this and it's really awful and I'm going to write to your institute and say that you're fabulous. So so it's 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 an interesting line between being in and out of an in-group or an out-group, in or out of academia. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we can underestimate the disruptive force of critical theory and its... Uh one of its spawn queer theory. It's really upset the culture. It's changed the, the playing field where now you have to leave school to tell school what uh, an apple and an orange is or a male and a female is. It, it's really uh, has taken over and captured, at least in America, the institutions, uh, just because you can't even say basic things. It's amazing. Like that that uh, kindergarten cop clip where the boy says, boys have a penis, girls have a vagina. Like, cancel that kid. Get yeah. him out. <laughs> Pariah. But it's a, it's a wonderful clip and it's a, you know, a kind of, is it a gif or a gif? I think that's a series <laughs> away. <of laughs> we, we don't need another podcast debate. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's even five-year-old children know this. They know who their mum and their dad is if they're both around. They know if, you know, they're in, uh, you know, unusual family situations that these people are two men and, you know, I call them both dad or, you know, whatever the situation is, kids know. Kids know. And we all know that we, you know, we all know who our mum and our dad was, hopefully. And so it's, it's insane. But you're right, it would be, it would be, can you imagine someone writing that line now in a film? Without it being used as a lesson yeah, for how transphobic that child is. <laughs> they're being taught how to, there, there are schools that are teaching kids the pronoun, the, the pronoun, what's it called? The formality or etiquette, I guess, etiquette around pronouns and, and, and bridging that up. So um, you guys uh, are working on a paper. Um, I hope that that it uh, lights some fires. Maybe you'll be cited more than Foucault if you write it just right. You might. I mean, it's kind of excited to be on a paper that's like the first one to say that there's only two sexes. That's pretty <laughs> groundbreaking. I think we should get the, like the Nobel Prize for this discovery. Nobel Prize coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, um... 
Well, we uh, it, it's an opportunity to start from the beginning and build up again. Um, I, you know, I think in a certain respect, we can get to remove from our roots in a lot of different ways. And it's unfortunate uh, that that you guys have to be in the position of of di- making these distinguish uh, these distinct uh, this distinguishment. Uh, but at the same time, it's kind of a calling of us back to basics, going back to basics and starting over with first principles um, and then even defending those first principles, because if you don't have them, there's all these consequences and just really step by step going through those things. Um, even though uh, we think that we're above that, sometimes we get too high and we need to be kind of brought down to earth. So it's kind of a in a way, there's a virtue to doing this work. Yeah, absolutely. It's. I mean, it's, I think it's a good opportunity to to write the the defense of this, and you know, it's it should be in the literature. What's it called? Forever. Is there a cool name? The defense of sex. We don't, we don't have a name yet. I don't know. Okay. Okay. Think about I'll, it. I'll wait for it. No, Prince of a sexuum. But now I can't remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> something something along the lines of sex is real, or I don't know. Yeah. No, I think I was going to try and play on some kind of deconstruction, postmodern <laughs> construction of sex or something. I don't, yeah, no, it's um, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for your time and your expertise. Expertise, Emma's great to capture you on film. I don't know how often you do this, but uh, you're very suitable to this medium. I have to say. Oh, thank you. Is that? weird <laughs> it might have been weird I, I i i i feel bad complimenting people but i wanted to compliment you but i don't know where the line was on complimenting you but it's fun to speak with you okay that's lovely thank you it's been really cool to be here <laughs> it's been fun awesome thanks for the invite absolutely i will end that there um congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion if you enjoyed it do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff and do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well have a good night